Ethel's Travel Tales, accounts from an addicted travel photographer. survey over the years. December 1974. While on my Christmas break during my junior year abroad studying in England, I decided to go to Berlin. I figured Berlin was one place I wouldn't have a chance to see later, and I felt it shouldn't be missed. My political consciousness has really been awakened. For the first time, I'm able to emotionally realize there's been a world war. Also, the difference between East and West, I went to both sides, is the epitome of the difference between capitalism and communism. Going through Checkpoint Charlie is like stepping through a bridge into another world. From massive stores and advertisements with BMWs and Mercedes, you stepped into a somber atmosphere with Russian soldiers everywhere. Things written in German and Russian and only small Russian cars. I saw one VW in East Berlin. Everything else was something called Trabant. West Berlin is alive and active. East Berlin is quiet and cautious. Every night I went out, three times to a film, one night to a play, and one night to a cabaret. I think my German got, by necessity, much better, and I didn't feel awkward with the language. Perhaps because of my family's Austrian and German background and friends, Berlin seemed far less foreign to me than Venice in Italy, visited earlier in the journey when I was traveling from England back to Germany. I'm really glad I went. I understand so much more about what the Cold War is and what World War II was. June 1988. Day one, West Berlin, 2nd of June. Back in Berlin, after 13 and a half years, it was very weird when I first arrived, but it's a lot better now. But why are there so many freaks here? A man was riding his bicycle with his nether parts exposed, dangling off the back of his seat. It must have been very uncomfortable. Fortunately, there are also some nice people here. Because the odd things to, thing to happen during the day, I found the evenings very easy. Walking down and shooting on Kudam, Kurfürstendamm, the main street was relaxing and fun, crowded, full of life. Finally, at 11.20 p.m., I had to resign myself to what the time really was. I would have happily continued walking till past midnight. It's 11.45, and as I still have to get up early in the morning, I'll cut this short. Day 2, Berlin, 3rd of June. Woke this morning, and despite the forecast, it was beautiful weather. I bounced up. By 6.45 a.m. I was out of the house. By 7.45 it was cloudy. And by 8, completely covered. Here I was, all ready to go, and nothing. Oh well. I booked Potsdam for tomorrow. All in all, it just seemed easier to go with an organized tour from this end rather than divert from East Berlin to Leipzig with all my luggage. So everything is pushed around. Sunday morning in West Berlin, afternoon over the border, Monday in East Berlin, and on to Leipzig that evening. I don't know what's with this weather, 
although they say maybe tomorrow it will be good again. The weather isn't bad, it just isn't good enough to shoot. Berlin is a large German city. I see bits of Hamburg and Heidelberg, the only other cities I know. The political split is strange. The Alexanderplatz Funkturm, the radio tower, in the east is pretty obvious, and when I'm on Strasse des 17 Juni, the street of 17th of June, heading in that direction, I certainly feel something. It's almost a letdown when one reaches the border. The Brandenburg Tor, Berlin's symbol, is an island of no man's land, officially in the east, although the West Berliners have built a scaffold to look over the wall. The tour is run down, small, and facing the other way, but at least I got a shot. I hope to catch it from the other side as well. Berlin doesn't seem too weird today. I haven't seen any perverts exposing themselves while riding their bicycles. The weather's not been good all day. It got so far as to rain for a bit, but the whole time it looked as if it was just about to clear. Even at 7.30 this morning, it still looked that way. But I gave up by now. I went to the zoo and aquarium instead. I took the camera with me in the hope of catching the panda, who turned out to be as dozy as the one in London. The zoo itself was very nice. Lots of interesting ideas on how to keep animals in very few cages. The polar bears were magnificently represented in completely open, huge area. I could see five bears, apparently quite happy. The most extraordinary thing to me was how many babies were born in the zoo. Baby hippos, baby rhinos, baby Przewalski horses. It seems to be a feature. There were lovely plants and gardens, and like good old Regent's Park, it even had an extension over the canal. <laughs> Same lack of space, perhaps? What I didn't like was the lack of public signs. There was a dearth of directions and maps, and no information as to whether the apparently empty cages had animals in them or not. At least the Regent's Park Zoo in London keeps us well informed. The aquarium was all right. I suppose I expected a bit more. Very nice, huge area, a large tropical central hothouse for the collection of crocodiles. The arrival of dinner just interrupted those notes. I'm doing well. It's a quarter past midnight, so these notes have to be quick and then bed. Day three to Potsdam, <laughs> I hope, 4th of June. Was this a good idea? I asked myself. It's crowded on this one of three buses. It's sunny. Hey, hey. Saturday, a weekend of a national holiday and a tour that's been running for only six months. But I can well imagine the organizational and luggage difficulties if I went on my own. This is the bust mostly for Ausländer, foreigners. But I forgot that could mean Swiss and Austrian. Interestingly enough, on board are quite a few West Germans who've obviously done their mandatory 28-day in advance booking in order to be allowed in the East. Last night's photo inspiration proved clever and useful. Rather than hang around on the metro, I decided to take a taxi. That way I could do Brandenburg tour as I didn't like walking that long stretch of park-lined road in the dark. The taxi driver was a young woman about my age. She was very friendly and really got into the spirit of the exercise. She recommended the Congress Halle as a beautiful extra. I'm sure she must have slowed down the meter as the total taxi fare was very reasonable. I did the tour, the Halle, the Siegesäule. So many of West Berlin's nighttime attractions are now shot. Now, if only the morning's nice weather would hold up.
an hour later, still on the way to Potsdam, I hope. I'm sitting in a packed tour at the East German border. This wait reminds me of a queue for the Channel Ferries on a busy summer weekend. It's very, very busy. As someone on the coach pointed out, that's probably why there's no unemployment in East Germany. And the sky is now cloudy. I wouldn't have had anything else to do anyway. Hopefully, by the time we reach the San Susi Palace, I can shoot some decent pics in decent weather. We haven't moved for at least 20 minutes. To my left is transit to Czechoslovakia and Poland. To my right, back to West Berlin. Everyone is bored and restless, and it's hot. Would it have been quicker to have traveled via East Germany after all? Probably not. Beneath that distant black cloud, I see a hint of gray and then bluish? Or maybe that's just an East German border guard on the horizon. Things are beginning to make sense. No wonder it was so difficult to get pictures of Sanssouci when I was picture researching all those years ago. I'm having trouble just getting there. I was wrong. Behind those black clouds are more black clouds. And in front of the buses in front of us are more buses. I just found out this is the only way West Germans are allowed to visit Potsdam. They don't get visas for East Germany. The West German gentleman next to me had to wait four weeks to get on this tour. I sure hope it's worth it. Is this the time to perhaps to begin the novel? Hardly the dramatic spy exchange I had imagined sitting on a crowded bus among hundreds of others. All those years ago when I was still in publishing, working on a dummy for a book I don't even remember, trying to obtain those Sanssouci pics. A vague memory of the place being inaccessible, somewhat on the level of Petra Dovoritz, the palace near Leningrad. And here I am, ten years later, waiting to see it on business. All right then, business then pleasure. We have now moved once in 45 minutes. Some pleasure. Psychological salve. What is it on the other side that makes so many people want and wait to queue up. What effect does that have? Does it make us want all the more to see what's over there, or does it make us want to turn around and go home? At this point, proved by the queue on my right, even doing that would take a couple of hours. At least I don't have to stand. I see a border guard in the bus in front of me. Does that mean anything? Is he going to take every passport and look at every face like the last time I crossed into East Germany in 1974? I can see the wall, too. A brief aside while I'm waiting. Often when I travel to cities I had been to many years before, I wonder at how much I missed the first time. To give me credit, cities usually do change. From what I've heard, I won't even recognize East Berlin. As it is, West Berlin has changed a great deal, too. The Siga soil is a great, big, beautiful roundabout surrounded by parkland on all sides. Last time, in 1974, I had to crawl over rubble merely to get near it. The Kaiser Wilhelm Gedachniskirche looked like a ruined church, like a stump of a half-amputated limb. But now they've done it up so that it looks like a Disney version of a ruin. Its foundations were crumbling, I read somewhere, and perhaps this way is much safer. But to me, it's much less dramatic. The futuristic panopticum on the corner of Kudam isn't working. I remember flash futuristic images across mega screens incurring visions of a society to come. Now it's a black hole among brighter lights, a 
photographic eyesore. Perhaps in part due to summer, and that's the last time I was here was in winter, the streets buzz now. Kudam is bursting with energy late at night. I got back from shooting at 11.15 and felt it was a crime to waste the rest of the evening. Right, we've got, now got our passports back, and I think it's going to rain. One and a quarter hours, and we've moved three times. Yes, here he comes. The guard will scrutinize my pick and then me, like the last time, when he comes. No blue and no guard in sight. Here he comes. <sighs> what an ordeal that was. Really marginal as to whether it was worth it. Sansusi was a real disappointment in very poor condition. Its unique six terraced vineyard and landscape tiers were indeed there, but forlorn and ignored. I saw nothing of the wonderful fountains. I didn't go inside as I wanted to concentrate on the exterior. The weather was cloudy and I took the shots, almost just to prove I was there. Next, Cecilienhof was exactly what I thought it would be, easily worth missing. It was nicely done and of course of historic appointment importance. The three-way Churchill-Truman-Stalin agreement of German partition was signed there. Not much to photo, although I tried. The real surprise was the Neuen Palais. I expected a little summer house. It was a massive complex on a magnificent scale. Two summer houses on one side with a huge great colonnade between them and a massive great palace on a Versailles Hampton Court scale. Inside were terrific rooms with magnificent marble and wood floors and an extraordinary space composed of agate and shell, rock, etc. The entire facade of the whole area was not only in terrible repair, but in the process of being completely renovated. Building sites everywhere, bricks, logs, hard hat areas. Combined with the bad weather and all the overall dismalness of East Germany, it was quite depressing. Just the kind of place one gets lost in, in nightmares. But it will be so magnificent when it's finished. In 1993, they say, for the 100th anniversary of Potsdam. The way back wasn't quite the dawdle we expected. Half an hour, better than two, at the East German border again, the West Germans waved us through. Day four, West and East Berlin, 5th of June. I'm exhausted. I've been trying all day to get something to eat, and finally at 7 p.m. I've managed it. It's a self-service cafeteria at the base of a five-star hotel in East Berlin. The first thing to notice is the price. Food is about a third what it is in West Berlin. It's true, East Berlin is not recognizable from when I was last here. Buildings are intact, if a bit grubby. Streets are whole and clear. Trains are brand new. So far, it's a lovely city. In fact, both Berlins are lovely. Not an impression I came away with 13 and a half years ago. I don't remember Alexanderplatz being so nice or so lively. I suppose East Berlin represented something so significant to me. My first visit to a communist country and my first visual awareness that there had been a war. Now it's a big modern city, reminiscent of some of the Czech or Hungarian places that I had visited before. I certainly don't feel weird or paranoid except that the East German border is still one of the most difficult to cross. 
The weather started out as great, and just not to be caught again, I photographed the west-facing Wilhelm Gedachtnis before breakfast. And just to fool me, it stayed that way till much later. Day 5, East Berlin, 6th of June. It's pouring down with rain and scheduled to stay that way today with showers tomorrow. Another ode in the making. The mid-German European spring rains, days of gray, warm without sunshine. I could wax lyrical if it weren't so tired. There's something about carrying the camera, etc., that weighs most heavily on the lower part of my body. Where I'm staying, the Palast Hotel, is a five-star luxury place in what must be one of the best locations in East Berlin, on the water side of the River Canal. Directly across on the island is the Berlin Cathedral. Still needs a lot of work, but at least it's whole and its dome is finished, not the half-cupola, half-circle ruin I remember from the last trip. Beyond the semi-building site and the healthy clump of trees, I can see various neoclassical roofs of the famous museums, including the Pergamum. Of course, like West Berlin, when it was Friday, the important museums are closed Monday and Tuesday here. And today is Monday! At least the ancient Babylonian Ishtar Gate section is open. It's worth going, if only for that. My imagination is fired up, and seeing Unter den Linden, I saw a painting at Potsdam of how Berlin looked in the mid-19th century, a wide, magnificent boulevard flanked on both sides by beautiful Baroque and neoclassical buildings. Walking there last night, it was all there. Despite the addition of an Aeroflot office and a Bulgarian tourist bureau, the impressive sweep still presents itself. The German opera on one side, the university on the other. The street has been extremely well restored. It's one of the most beautiful stretches of architecture I've ever seen, and I'm delighted it's possible to view it. It would be great to make a slightly anachronistic film, and there must be some ambitious East European preparing for it. In West Berlin, and especially in the East, one is made aware of how important a city Berlin must have been. The last time I was here, it was gray and dark winter, and the ruins everywhere shocked me into the awareness of what war must have meant. This time, night doesn't fall till 9.30 to 10, hence the late nights, and all around are monuments to a magnificent culture. Prussia had to have been a country full of artistic presence with a desire to show off. Another thought kept on lingering, especially in the East. East Berlin, if no longer, certainly was a Russian city. The secrets of Berlin still exist when having left the American sector, and the majority and most cultural parts of the city are now Russian. Berlin was the very center of a country whose government caused 20 million Russians to be killed in the last war. 20 million people of one nationality. And that very nationality took over the center of the city of the source of their deaths. Why then glorify the past? Why not only preserve, but actually restore the symbols and historical roots of the perpetrators of that genocide? We'd like to think the Germans weren't always insane, and perhaps by glorifying a previous epoch, it makes them aware that there was a far more important heritage to cling to before Hitler. There's also the international responsibility to preserve such a marvelous example of architecture, cultural history combined. As East German is now a satellite of the Soviet Union, there's a responsibility to that country too.
On this trip, I suppose I'm being made aware of the clash of desires to remember the past so fervently as to never allow the perpetrators to have anything again, and the new generation to educate, embrace, and explain to them what the past was and how the future will be different. How does one deal with the huge German guilt without either letting it slip into oblivion or crashing into the very souls of posterity? How could I begin to explain, if I were German, what we did to my children? Whew, heavy stuff this morning. Well, on to see part of the Pergamum that is open. The Pergamum was wonderful, even better than I remember. The altar, the marketplace, and especially the Ishtar Gate, magnificent. But since this morning, at all the exhibitions I subsequently visited, the cathedral especially, have really depressed me. Upstairs, there was an exhibition on the way the Jews were treated in the ghetto. I fought the depression and visited the market hall. Queues everywhere, and the people were so impolite. And it's pouring with rain. Overall, the city is gray and austere, and the rain makes it even more so. I really think the best way to see it was as I saw it last night beautifully lit, emerging from the darkness. I'm at a coffee bar. The food is more Czech than Hungarian. In a cherry cake, they haven't depitted the fruit. Coffee, however, is generally pretty good. I'm certainly less enamored with the communist lifestyle than I used to be. Before, I was a nervous student, no job, no skills, no idea of what I would be doing in the future. The idea of all my basic needs being supplied cheap housing, cheap heat, cheap food, which still exists here, in fact. I don't think prices have changed in 14 years. It seemed pretty good. Even museums and public transport were and are incredibly low-priced. But the inevitable has happened. I'm not 20 and unskilled. I'm 34, specifically skilled, and almost affluent. I'm about to move into a flat that I'll own that's no doubt larger than what I'd be allowed to have here. Almost by most standards worldwide, it's incredibly expensive where I live, but I can afford it. Now I'm out of my league. I'm in an elegant five-star luxury ho business hotel in Leipzig, the Merkur. It looks like anywhere and everywhere. I'm in my jeans and my shooting gear. I'd be much happier in a less pretentious place and much, much happier if I could shoot. If I thought the weather before was bad, now it's misty and murky. There's a terrific half view of church and town hall spires from my 15th floor room. I have been progressively weirded out all day, starting with the horrible anti-German photographic exhibition <laughs> provided by the Soviets of this morning and moving through flat, woody East German countryside in cloudburst rainstorms with a car with a smudged windscreen. The sky in the meantime has become a, a filled with reservoir that has been turned upside down and it's wet out there. Maybe, maybe it will rain hard enough to leave a gorgeous day tomorrow, but like it did in West Berlin. Please, please, I hate feeling useless. Leipzig, here I am. It's so crowded with historical associations, but each time I try to call up my memory supplies, a curtain is drawn. I suppose East Germany wasn't anywhere I imagined visiting, despite the culture. In fact, I didn't envisage visiting Germany seriously at all until the photo library started sending me here for work. Despite the initial advice that traveling strictly by public transport, especially in the more egalitarian East, would be a good thing, I gave up on the idea by going by rail. 
Originally, the thought was to take buses and tram trains with cabs to fill in the gaps. As it turns out, taxis are a true rarity, despite what the pro-East West Berliners told me. Just to get from the Stadtbahn to the hotel through half-deserted, half-reconstructed East Berlin back streets took a good half-day out of me. To have to repeat that each time, especially in this weather, struck a note of terror in me. I knew there had to be another way, so I decided to hire a car. I don't know why an efficient, comfortable AM-cassetted radio Fiat Uno is cheaper than a Russian Lada, but it is. Now I can move at my own pace and not worried about carrying or leaving my luggage, and I can drive it back to West Berlin. So the transport nightmare is over, if only the weather one would instill me with more hope. <sighs> That's better. Nice fish. Considering this is a gourmet restaurant, the food is still more Czech adequate than Hungarian good. I feel better, but tired and sleepy. My Kenshin cafe, and then an early night for a change. No pics at all today. Day six, Leipzig, 7th of June. I'm sitting in a very pleasant place, the Café Garten Naschmarkt. It's probably the most scenic part of all of Leipzig. To my left is the Altes Rathaus, a lovely old building worthy of being German. In fact, and the reason I'm here, is the Goethe Memorial with a baroque flourished building behind. I just got a lemonade. That at the sit-down service of the café cost 50 Pfennig, 50p. 50p is one of those funny little aluminium coins that float, the one that wouldn't, one wouldn't really bother to pick up if dropped. It's worth about 16 pence. For that, I get to sit as long as I like in the historic center of this old town, and I get a lemonade on top. However, it's very hard work. The sun does not want to come out, and if it can be persuaded, it only peeks out through tiny holes in the dense cloud cover. I gather it's not worth sacrificing Dresden for Leipzig, so I'm shooting this afternoon regardless, as I won't waste time here tomorrow. Give me a beautiful sunny morning and I'll be finished in an hour. Well, these are the breaks, I guess. <sighs> I've been to three restaurants and I can't eat at any of them. The first at another hotel is only for their hotel guests. The second is closing early at eight, and the third at my own hotel is full. This is driving me crazy. I have to wait in line to buy cookies, to buy chocolate, to buy drinks, to buy camera equipment. I had to go to four places to find somewhere to sit down for coffee, and at 8 p.m. I can't find a place to eat. No wonder I feel so weird. I'm living on peanuts in the hotel room's mini bar. I'm certainly not enamored with the East German way of life. The contrast with West Germany is outrageous. The East Germans, if they're affluent, by Ladas or even Wadburgs, but most cars are those horrible little putt-putts called Trabants. I've never seen so many broken-down cars on the, as, as the Trabants on the Autobahn yesterday. And yet in front of this five-star hotel is the very symbol of German affluence, Mercedes and Porsches. I'm hungry and I'm desperate for some real food. Breakfast, normally the only decent meal I have on these trips, would be terrific for lunch. All sorts of salamis, pic pickled vegetables, herrings, sardines, shashliks. Great, but I can only handle eggs and rolls. By lunchtime, I wish I could eat the breakfast, but I usually have an extra cheap between 8p pfennig and 1 mark, i.e. 25 to 30p, but adequate bratwurst. I have a piece of cake or even a chocolate bar, neither very good, 
and I'm ready for a real meal at 7.30 or 8 or 9 or any time. Well, I've decided I'm designed for either a Southern European lifestyle, dinner at 8 or 9, or I need my VW camper van so I can eat whenever I want. It seems to me whenever I go north of London, I end up starving and or eating garbage food. Dinner at last, but only after waiting till 9.30 p.m. to realize I couldn't do the shots I wanted. At 9.45, it's still light. And that's when they turn the lights off at the concert hall, as that's when everyone's already gone home. The same thing happened at the Philharmonia in West Berlin. Simply, Leipzig's been a struggle. St. Thomas's Church in Scaffolding is only open weekends, and today is Tuesday. St. Nicholas's Church in even more scaffolding is closed today due to filming. The plaza in front of the Rathaus is being dug up for an underground transport extension. It doesn't get dark till 10 p.m., and the lights are out by then. We've been through the dinner saga, although that seems all right by now, and the weather, of course. At least the coffee is good everywhere, and the food is cheap. I'm having orientation problems. I'm in an Italian restaurant, East German food being of such a mediocre caliber, I lose nothing by eating foreign. It's hard to order and reply in German in an Italian restaurant. When the menu is in Italian, translated into a language in which I find the food description very strange, I get disoriented. I thought I figured it out. Czechoslovakia was odd, but it had so much to offer and see that I overlooked the East European approach. Hungary, I didn't like that much. It was kind of boring, but the food was at least superb. I'm still waiting for what East Germany has to offer, beside Unter den Linden at night. I sure hope it's Dresden, and I sure hope the weather to appreciate it. Otherwise, I give up. Day 7, Dresden, 8th of June. There's a thick fog upon the land, or at least obscuring the tops of the buildings. There's no point in hanging around here. There's no saying Dresden will be better, but at least I'll be at my next destination. Breakfast. I'm surrounded by business people, most of them conservatively dressed with the occasional exception. There's a, probably West, German party of four men and about my age in shiny dark gray fitted suits with slick backed hair and white socks. There's a businessman on my own, on his, on his own, on the left, who's gorgeous blonde with a pretty face. <laughs> Who cares what he wears? He's obviously waiting for the rest of his party and looks up every so often. Eyes up. Well, there have to be some perks. I certainly stand out in this dull bunch with my flowery t-shirt and banana-colored trousers. I'm on business as much as they are, but fortunately a different one, no doubt. Still, I'm sure they make up million-dollar mark ruble deals while I'm trying to find ways to amuse myself in this fog. Coffee's finally working and I'm feeling better. I'm enjoying the people watching. The good-looking ones are rare, both for men and women. Geschmackssache, a matter of taste, no doubt. So I'm now in Dresden, and the weather's bad. I'm hopeful that the lighting is halfway decent tonight so I can at least do some nice shots. The reconstruction work is phenomenal, and there's still an awful lot to, to left to do. The government has obviously decided to rebuild only the important places, for example, the Semper Oper, Zwinger Palace, and the Cathedral. Just beyond the river's edge, everything is Russian, a.k.a. East European, modern, soulless, depressing, ubiquitous. 
Another sense of extreme contrasts. I'm sitting in a cafe across from the Tsvinga Palace. Taking the palace as it was built and will eventually be rebuilt, it is a massive Baroque complex of extravagant and indulgent royal flourishes. It really is large, and every detail has been overlaid. If it were in Austria or England or even West Germany, it would be stunning. For a communist country, it's not bad, especially as everything has to be reconstructed virtually completely. Across the road at this cafe, it's something out of a workers' revolutionary handbook. Huge low ceilings done in concrete, green tiles, and stone floor. We eat on trays, the cutlery aluminium, and the atmosphere crowded and noisy. And it's cheap. Two cups of good coffee and a decent cake for around 75 pence. It's as undecadent as they come and a decent place to organize the next capitalist revolution. At least in the West, we have porcelain cups and saucers. I certainly find far more similarities to the Soviet Union here than I did in Hungary or Czechoslovakia, glasnost or not. The fact I understand the language makes me feel even stranger, although Russian is the second language here, and I no longer follow that. Only the remnants of my briefly studying Russian nine years before. There are lots of USSR tourists here, and I feel almost like a spy in the midst. Since the Potsdam tour, I've not heard any Americans. Where are they? There's an East European slogan. The Soviet Union forever. Forever, yes, but not a moment longer. I got very depressed for a bit. An old woman in the workers' cafeteria asked me to turn around as I walked by. She then pointed at my backside and said, Nicht schön, not nice. But the working man at the table, apparently not with her, replied, Sie denkt, dass es nicht schön ist, aber wir finden es schön. She thinks it's nice, but we find it nice. But it still got me depressed. There must be bigger, fatter people than I am. Why pick on me? Returning to my room, I dozed off and heard a BBC World Service on my shortwave radio on East, Herman, East European humor. Huh. Watched the Italian opera actor Onella Muti's first film, Junkie but watchable, killed more time, then did some night shots. I worked like a loony, and luckily, too. I began as soon as the lights went on, 9.30 p.m., raced through, and at 11 p.m., just as I was contemplating whether it was worth shooting the scaffolded but floodlit exterior of the Zwinger Palace, boom! Lights out! The effect is almost as stunning as a lightning flash. Reeling from the shock, all I could do was think about how lucky I was to have worked so fast. Day 8 to Berlin, West, 9th of June. I'm in Dresden, and it's wet. The muzak in the breakfast room is the same as the car show's theme tune on British television. I suppose it's no stranger than hearing Kate Bush or the Hollies. Still, no cans of soft drinks are available to the general public. They're only in intershops, when one buys with West German currency in the Imbis. They give you drinks and glasses for which you pay a deposit and then return them. More employment? I met an American couple last night, tourist business, visiting campus church chapels and staying at people's houses. They found East Germany terrific and the people very nice. Well, I'm glad somebody's having a good time. I went to the vault museum yesterday, so there's nothing much else to see. I might as well get back to the West. Oh, hell, tomorrow's Friday and the Egyptisches Museum in which Nefertiti is housed is closed again. 
It's possible to go on a tour of West and East Germany and miss museums all the way. Nefertiti, Egyptisches Museum closed Friday. Potsdam closed Saturday. Berlin shooting Sunday. East Berlin Museum closed Monday. Leipzig churches, including Tuesday. Gemälde Galerie Dresden, Wednesday. Therefore, what I've seen are the things so important to tourists that the officials couldn't close them. The Western Asian and ancient collections in the Pergamum, but all around were locked gates to the other bits of the museum, and the huge, elaborate, and fantastic collection of jewels, carved bits, and accessories of the Green Vault. I really could have done with a few happy go-gowns yesterday, but they were locked away. I'm almost overwhelmed by the feelings that began in East Berlin and have become progressively stronger. Dresden might have been rebuilt, but these token buildings have a long way to go. I don't think they'll ever be finished. They'll be incorporated. The Frauenkirche is straight out of the history books. Two parts of a once-whole building, Baroque shells enclosing huge piles of rubble. They say they won't touch it as a memorial. I'm especially depressed at the incredible waste that occurred, almost upstaging the Jewish Holocaust, destroying 20 million Russian lives, bombing and nearly obliterating a magnificent and cultural city. It's so appalling to think that human beings who are so similar, no matter where in the world one goes, might have to destroy so totally. Okay, so I don't like the East German way of life, but I'd certainly put up with it rather than cause another person to be killed, literally or figuratively. Of course I'd like a Porsche, but I'd prefer that people could eat and live in decent houses. Flowers are flowers and birds are birds and love is love. And one doesn't have to destroy the achievements of a magnificent cooperative of artists to prove it. I feel so strange about this. It shocks me. I think it's time I went home and stopped worrying. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen is on the Muzak. Day 9. Returning to London via West Berlin from the East. 10th of June. An important addition from memory. When I first rented the car in East Berlin, I was told I couldn't return it to West Berlin Airport. I, sorry, I was told I could return it to West Berlin Airport. When I asked where I could re-enter the West when the time came, I was assured there was a border crossing. All was well. So I'd had enough of this trip. I tried to curtail my, my visit, but was told I would have to buy a whole normal fare back, back to London. That is, it was too expensive. Days later, when I was finally allowed to go home, I checked my German map and looked for another, the nearest border, conveniently off the Autobahn. When I reached it, the guard took my passport and after quite a long time returned, informing me I could only cross at Friedrichstrasse, which is Checkpoint Charlie, inside East Berlin. Despite my protestations, the guard was firm. I had no East Berlin map. How could I find the crossing? The only way I could think of was to follow the wall, assuming it would eventually lead me to Checkpoint Charlie. I made my way on a gray, dreary day, feeling more and more depressed. I felt trapped. There was no break in the wall, or at least none where I could cross. To my right were parts of East Berlin I had had no intention of visiting. To the left, the barricade. Finally, after much wending and weaving, I came to Friedrichstrasse. I had close to 30 pounds of soft East German currency in my pocket, but I didn't care to exchange it. I just wanted out. When I was released at last, I drove straight into a protest march. 
I'm so glad to be back out there, back in the West, I thought. In the meantime, it's rainy and cloudy again in West Berlin, and I have most of the day to kill before my 5 p.m. flight back to London. I'm at the new National Gallery that has quite a nice collection. It could be even better if most of the rooms weren't closed. I really need a good Miro, Clay, Renoir, or Modigliani to cheer me up. I just wish there were more. I'm almost in a good mood. My cherry crumble cake is good, as is the coffee. For all the things I might not have liked on this trip, I have been spoiled at least for that brown liquid. It seems there were eight weeks of good weather before I came. My whole travel timetable is a few weeks out of sync. I'm surprised how pleased I am to be back in the West. Cans of drink are easy to get, food is good and available, no queues. There's a sense of style and design again, something which seems to have been totally lacking in the DDR, Deutsche Demokratische Republik. In fact, I went into the huge Rosenthal showroom in Kudam and indulged in superb design, ceramic, furniture, cutlery, glass. Rosenthal, to their great credit, are hardly parochial. They use designs from all over the world, US, Italy, Finland, Switzerland, Germany, and let them practice their art rather than commission a Rosenthal design. How wonderful some of these things are, and of course, only affordable in Greenland. Then finally home. I don't think I've ever been so glad to get back to England. After 1989, I had a few opportunities to revisit what was now known as Eastern Germany. I was amazed at the difference, initially at all the money pouring in from the West into the East. Suddenly, buildings that were perhaps important but impoverished had renovations. Once again, there was scaffolding everywhere. The so-called West Germans were invading, recognizing investment opportunities within their own now unified country. My photo library sent me back to Berlin a few years later, and again, I was stunned at the difference. East Berlin, now having lost the East and simply a part of the metropolis, was thriving with a large art scene. Even more surrealist, at least to me, was to see the open Brandenburg Gate with cars such as Audis, Mercedes, and Volkswagens happily traveling through its columns. It bore almost no resemblance to the divided city I remembered from either of my previous trips.
My favorite places, July 1997, Iceland. I hadn't really imagined Iceland as somewhere I particularly wanted to go, but when I first went freelance in 1996, I contacted every travel company and tourist office to offer my photographic services. In 1997, I received a fax asking if I'd like to join a tour at the land up north. At this stage, I would say yes to anything so was willing to participate in this group camping and hiking trip on a trade exchange basis. As will be described, I didn't know how wonderful I would find the country, so much so that in the following years I would return, both for work and my own pleasure, six more times. Day 8, La Manaloyer, 14th of July. I haven't had a chance for notes, as the social life and activities have been totally time-consuming. We're on our way from Lake Miva to La Manaloyer in an 11-hour blitz. We're basically heading from north to south, and right now, it's all a white nothingness. It's the first time we haven't been able to see anything. The seven-hour hike yesterday exhausted most of us, and the majority of the bus inhabitants are now asleep. How to describe Iceland? Incredible. The majestic sweep and dramatic coasts of Scottish Sutherland. The glacier-sculpted valleys and white snow of snow-covered mountains of Norway. The low mist lining the narrow fjords of Alaska. The extraordinary hot springs bursting into white clouds of steam with erupting mud bubbles of Yellowstone. Most important, though, are the things that are uniquely Icelandic the folklore, the traditions, the flavor of a country that is really very different. If there's an affiliation, it's possibly with Scotland. The history does spring from Norway, although Norway was the colonial power for some years. The predominant blonde, blue-eyed people, no Inuits here, certainly fit the European image. Yet I have a bit of trouble with this country being Europe, even though it is. I struggle with trying to identify what makes Iceland so different, beside the scenery. The capital, Reykjavik, is not only the most northern, but also the only one in the world to have a salmon river flowing through it. We have not seen any darkness. After sunset, around 11.45 p.m., the brightness dims a little. The latest I've been up, 1.30 a.m., the morning sky was so lovely, it was a pity not to take advantage of the light. Often when I've woken, whether at four, five, or six, the sun was warming my tent. It is high summer, and we're party to the joy that pervades a society that suffers cold, snow, and long black nights for much of the year. We're seeing the exhilarated side of a nationality that tempers this high with a somberness of the other seasons. In my search to try to find what makes this place, maybe I'll have to see the winter too. A few facts for reference. The population is only about 260,000, 
with around 90,000 living in Reykjavik. Though expensive, the country has a very good standard of living with high literacy and joint longest life expectancy with Japan in the world. Theater is highly subsidized, with most towns having their own resident company. Fishermen can earn good money, although most people have two to three jobs and work very hard. There are about three sheep to each person and the equivalent of two horses for every three people. The land area is greater than all of Ireland. We are now passing glacial streams and cascades, driving on roads that a four-wheel driver would think about seriously before attempting. There are two letters in the Icelandic alphabet that exist nowhere else, or perhaps only in the original ancient Norwegian, to which the modern Icelandic is slightly similar. One is something that looks on the page a bit like a P with a little stem at the top. It's a th sound at the beginning of the word, a thod, and is soft and unaccentuated. The second is a small O with a little squiggle at the top. It's in the middle of the word, is an eth, and is emphasized, or should I say emphasized. Day 11, 18th of July. After nearly two weeks, I finally have a little time by myself to put finger to the keyboard. We're in Reykjavik, the main bulk of the tour having finished. I'm indulging in a cafeteria French roast in the center of town, about the only welcome change I'm experiencing after having had only instant coffee on night long bus journeys. I had such a wonderful time on this trip. I'm feeling sad, even though there's still a day and a half left to go. Iceland is stunning, gorgeous, and exotic. The vistas are so breathtaking, I can't take it all in. The walks not only gave me a long enough chance to view the vehicularly inaccessible, but also relaxed me. For all the work, this assignment has proved to be perhaps the holiday I needed. But what have I seen and done? I'll try to summarize the trip in retrospect. Day one, Snifelsness, 7th of July. We arrived late afternoon at Keflavik. The bus whisked us away from the airport, past Reykjavik and Bogarnes on a four-hour journey to Snaffelsnes. The seaside campsite was at the base of a sweeping cliff, and the next morning, dot, dot, dot. Day two, Snaffelsnes, 8th of July. The white glacier-typed mountain towered over us. The weather was flawless, and we began our walk at the base of Snaffelsjökull, Jökull meaning glacier. In perfect light, in the warm sun, we trundled over the lava flows down to the sea. There, we saw the dramatic cliff with resident kittiwakes and other gulls doing their breeding acrobatics over the turquoise-filled bays. I was already enchanted. We returned to our very basic two toilets and two basins in the middle of a field, but beautifully located campsite for dinner and had an evening walk to a nearby volcanic crater. On the rim, we could survey the forces that created the coastline and then later the land between then and now. Day three, Stickleshomer, 9th of July. Next day, we continued our coast walks, including to the gorgeous Dritvik, beautifully translated as Bird Shit Bay, before getting into the bus for the town of Stickelshomer. We camped there, and in the post-dinner light, I strolled through the town to the harbor. I watched the late evening sun, 
around 11 p.m. over the island and the views of the distant fjords. On my return, it began to rain, giving me my first midnight rainbow. Could life get more marvelous than that? Day four, Lake Miva, 10th of July. The day that followed was a marathon drive through poor weather, crossing the country to get to the north side. Via Akareri, the country's second town, we arrived at Lake Miva in preparation for our four-night stay. I had come to this country intentionally with minimum preconceptions and didn't really know what to expect. Day 5, Chonis, 11th of July. We were greeted with cold and drizzle the next day, but adjusted our itinerary to drive north to Tionis Peninsula. We stopped at Husavik, a dead ringer for Homer in Alaska, with a snow-covered range on the north side of the fjord that was so perfect it was probably painted. We continued through the Yokulsa Canyon that, though very impressive, was marred by poor weather. The little falls at least looked good. This little water was followed by the huge Detifoss, the most powerful in Europe, a straight, unadored, massive flow of water cutting its way through a bleak, stony landscape with virtually no vegetation around it. Detifoss was evil, a brute force with a watery entrance to hell. Maybe if the sun had been out, the effect would have softened a bit, but when we saw it, the gloom only added to the sinister sense chill-worthy. We then returned to our site, suitably impressed for the day. Day 6, Lake Miva, 12th of July. The day began with broken cloud and eventually turned gorgeous as we drove around Lake Miva, stopping first at the pseudo-craters of Skustadagiga, then a personal highlight. We visited the strange lava sculptures emerging from the lake at Kalvastrand. We continued to the weird formations at Bimibolger, then hiked up the steep side of the classic volcanic crater at Vierfrau. We hoofed it down back to the campsite. Day 7, Lake Miva, 13th of July. The 13th proved to be another highlight peak, ver veritably speaking. We began at the hot springs of Namafjall, watching the bubbling mud pools and spouting steam vents. The weather was glorious, with the red, yellow, green, and white colors of the natural chemicals providing a spectacular contrast to the brilliant blue sky. The weather was not to remain so flawless, as the cloud cover increased while we began our trek. The lava flows of Krafla, some from as little ago as 1975, still steam. The sense of being once again at the gates of hell overwhelmed us as we crossed black rock with sulfurous, billowing white steam escaping beneath our feet. The gray cloud cover contributed even more atmosphere. Of all the experiences in Iceland, this one was probably the truly unique one. Even in Hawaii, on one week old lava, the ground wasn't steaming anymore. Dory, our guide, described the country as a huge power station and how right he is. I have never had the sensation of the earth at work as much as in this place. The day was very, very impressive. Day 8, Laumanaloyer, 14th of July. The next day, 
showed us the bleaker side of Iceland. We crossed through the middle of the country, described as uninhabited and uninhabitable. Black, virtually plantless, with whatever to see being obscured by poor weather. We were told a glacier was in view through the thick fog, but we found the mountain refuge, a true refuge. We finally emerged from the lack of visibility, but not from the poor weather, to Laumanaloya, a place so potentially beautiful, I was almost relieved the sky wasn't blue. I'd be out of film in a few minutes. The location had vistas I had never seen before. Huge sculpted hills in rainbow colors. The river deltas reflecting the distant great clouds as streaks of silver. I've long since stopped trying to catch my breath. Day 9, Laumana Lawyer, 15th of July. The hike of today's destination was to be the Raftinuska ice caves. We set off in the same weather as the day before, catching ever higher vistas of those rainbow hills. Despite the height and the snow, the steam vents spewed out heat and close to boiling water that warmed our hike. At one point, we reached View of Hell, Mark III, an outlook of the other side of the valley within a line of huge columns of steam almost disappearing into the horizon. It seemed as if we were no longer on this earth, but one of a billion of years ago on land that was being created underneath our feet. After a while, it was impossible to take in all that was going on. It was easier to store the memories and then emerge at a later date in palatable chunks. Unfortunately, the cloud came down and obscured all visibility. Dory, our guide, decided it was unwise to continue, so we returned to camp. To yet another highlight, the hot springs. A volcanic river gathering into a natural pool that was actually part of the campsite where we were staying. After a long, cold walk and dinner, we sat in the under-the-surface stream of the warm flow, chatting, laughing, and watching people. Conveniently placed was a platform where the unbashful Icelanders stripped their clothes off and then eventually back on. We three women of the group were the witches of Eastwick. Carol was the brunette, Cher, Andrea, and alternately Michelle, the Auburn Susan Sarandon, and I was the blonde Michelle Pfeiffer. Later on, Dory, our charming guide, joined me and we discussed politics till my emergence at two in the morning. What a life and what an excellent way to soothe the hiking aches. Day nine, Dirhuli, 16th of July. We left La Manaloya driving through the Lake District. The light was too poor to shoot. Fortunately, I think I would have gone photo mad. And by the time we reached Otherofoss Waterfall, the fog was so low, we couldn't see the top of the three tiers. As it turned out, for all the wonderful cascades we saw, not one was in bright sunlight. We reached the south coast and stopped at Deerhuli, where we spied on a large and delightful puffin colony. I even managed a few close-ups with the best lens I could muster on my medium format camera. At Skoya, we pitched our tents at the base of Skoyafoss one of Iceland's most famous waterfalls in preparation for the long walk that faced us the next day. Day 10, Torsmork, 17th of July. I've now come to our last and greatest trek, 
up the slopes of Torresmork between the stunning Ayafiakioko and Myrdale glaciers of Thin Forduhals Pass, over the snowfield that had almost no visibility, and down the river valley with its series of spectacular waterfalls. We staggered down by about 8.30, 6.30, having left camp at 9 a.m. Brilliant, the best and hardest walk of the tours. A, a little modern note here. The name Ayafiakioko might sound familiar. This is the volcano that blew up 13 years later in 2010, rendering this walk impossible for future hikers. At the camp bar that night, we were already beginning to feel sad, knowing the tour was virtually over, with only unaccompanied Reykjavik left. We would be saying goodbye to our cook, Margaret, our driver, Gary, and our guide, Dory. We drank at the exorbitant Icelandic prices, laughed, and sang our pre-farewells. Day 11, Reykjavik, 18th of July. On Friday, we finished our vehicular sightseeing by being real tourists, visiting the golden circle that included Gullfoss, Geyser, and Thingvellir. The Gullfoss, known as the Golden Waterfall, allegedly Iceland's most beautiful foss, would have thrilled me pre-visit, but proved to be an anticlimax after the wonderful things we had already seen. A compliment to the country, I guess. On arrival in the big city, we said farewell to our hosts and braced ourselves for the return to civilization. As for Reykjavik, well, it's difficult to photo as the weather is still not being kind. What should be mentioned here, however, is the phenomenal Friday and Saturday nightlife life. I went out for a meal with a friend at about 11 p.m. and later met up with the rest of the group. We went looking for a place to drink and having been turned away from various full houses, we found a place that was almost empty. We sat chatting, drinking, having fun, watching the place fill up. Suddenly, at 1 a.m., the dimness we noticed, the cafe was alive and crammed. The guests were young, some stunningly dressed, in clothes I hadn't seen outside the formal occasions of prom nights. The girls and boys practically paraded, changing positions through the venue so that everyone could see. Miniskirts, halter necks, evening gowns, PVC jumpsuits, admittedly more a show for the men than the women, but still good fun to look at. At 1.45 a.m., when the queue at the front door was three deep, we decided to head back. The streets were buzzing, throngs of young people, quite orderly, hanging out. So the rumors about the Reykjavik nightlife are absolutely true. Day 13, Reykjavik, 19th of July. I wandered around the city taking the best pics I could in such mediocre light and attempted to get back into city life. Reykjavik is actually okay. It's not like any other city in which I've been in ways I can't put my finger on, probably like Iceland in general. For a country that has only 260,000 people, of which nearly half are here, there are an incredible number of flash shops and chains, Body Shop, Monsoon, Habitat, Virgin. The coffee houses are always full and there are no empty stores. Again, there's so much money and I wonder where from? The fishing harbor is relatively small. Apparently most of the industry is based in the Vestman Islands south of here. We saw some offshore silhouettes near Skoyer. Oh well, 
I've had enough discussions with Dory, which ended up unexplained. Day 14, back to London, 20th of July. On the plane back home, I feel distinctly odd, as I feel I'm leaving a bit of me in Iceland. Funny, the better the holiday, the harder it is to go home. Okay, okay, it wasn't a vacation, but it sure felt like it. I'll definitely be making an effort to return to Iceland.